Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Langevin podcast. My guest today is uh, Jonathan Downey, an interpreter, interpreter trainer, interpreter researcher and author. Uh, I suppose I've forgotten a few things, but we'll talk about it. Who joins us from Scotland today? Hello, Jonathan. How are you? I'm doing well. Enjoying the overcast sunshine. Yeah, same here in Brussels. It's a, a rainy day. <laughs> so you are joining us from Edinburgh today? Yep. Yes. Great. Lovely city. I've been there, I think, once or twice and uh, immediately fell in love with the city. It's really, really beautiful. It, it's an incredible city. It's slightly more expensive than you would like, but it's a lovely, lovely city. And I'm close enough to the zoo that I can, wa that I can go and visit the monkeys whenever I want. It's exactly like watching yeah. uh, conference interpreters work. Yeah, that's true. Exactly. So why don't you tell us a bit about yourself first? So you, uh, you're you an interpreter. You wear different hats, so maybe you just get started with the with the interpreter hat to keep things simple. Yeah. Um, I've been an interpreter officially since 2007, but like a lot of people in the UK, it took me a while to get my first job. I don't think I actually got my first job until about a year, a year and a half after I started practicing. So I ended up doing a lot of translation bugging agencies, going back to agencies, because in those days I didn't realise that direct interpreting clients existed. And I didn't and still don't have enough languages to apply to the EU, to the European institutions. Um, that's something I'm working on at the moment. Um, and so eventually when I started getting work, I realised that certainly outside of London, the UK market can't sustain you being full time as an interpreter. So you have to look at what else can I do? Where else can I add value? Where else can I help? Um, so I still do a little bit of translation. Um, I get paid to do research projects, which is always fun. And as from sometime next year, I will be a published author with a book that's coming out with Routledge. Yeah, and we're going to talk about the book uh, a bit later on. Just just to talk about the translation, because with some people, interpreters who do translation on the side, as it were, it's sort of looked down upon as if it were a second class activity, which I think is it is not, because I've I've done some translating as well. And I always thought it was a very good compliment to, to interpreting. I mean, both are very good for each other, I think. What, what do you think about that? I think they help each other, but not in the ways that we would expect. I think it keeps my French a lot fresher because I'm, I'm working with it more often. But the strange thing is, is that the kind of work that I do, the kind of fields I work in in interpreting and the kind of fields I'm working in in translation have gone in two entirely different directions. Okay. Um, in interpreting, where I'm trying to go is more PR, press conference style things. But I've done a lot of, um, not European institution work, but work generated by the institution. So mm -hmm. lobbying, policy fora, all of that sort of thing. Um, and then European Works Councils, which are probably the most nightmarish job that interpreters can have. Yeah, I've heard of those. I've never done one myself. <sighs> but, <laughs> yes, The stuff of nightmares, I guess. Most of the interpreters' scare stories will come from EWCs. You get some really nice ones and then you have ones that have the potential to flare up nastily and you're really glad you're behind plexiglass. You just wish it was bulletproof. Um, but my translation work has been a bit more in in marketing, a bit more. I'm starting to go from translation into proofreading, editing and a little bit of copywriting as well, mostly because I realised that the skills that you need as a good translator, especially if you're kind of doing marketing stuff or my last large job was... Um, a research job for a cosmetics company where I spent kind of two weeks Googling skin conditions and wondering if that was what colour it actually was when someone had it. Um, you have to be able to write in a way that people will understand that can get across the style of the original writer. Um, and I thought actually that works a lot for copywriting where it's very easy as a translator to just be faithful to the source text and not think about the reader. 
uh, when you get into thinking about the reader, you, you're heading more and more towards transcreation and copywriting, which is something that uh, I'm beginning to move more into now as well, just because I actually enjoy it more than translation, but not as much as interpreting. <laughs> okay, so you, you have the priorities uh, very straight there. Yeah, I, I like anything that involves actually being in regular contact with people is good. Um, anything that involves being able to sit at my desk in my pyjamas is not so good. Um, I actually must admit for the first kind of two, three years of my career, I struggled a lot with translators' loneliness because at that, at that point my wife was working full time most of the time. Um, I hadn't heard of networks. Well, I'd heard of ITI um, and I was a member of ITI, but I didn't know what to do to actually meet other people. So I would sit at my desk in shorts and t-shirt chatting to our pet rabbits while bidding for pros jobs. Um, and if that doesn't drive you insane, nothing will. I was so glad when I started the PhD and actually met people. <laughs> it was quite it, it was quite good to get out there. And I think that's where the PhD's... An another way that the PhD's been helpful is it's allowed me to get in contact with other people, other interpreters. And then from there, I started thinking, oh, what about other translators and interpreters? Um, and started getting more involved in ITI and more involved in, in different things that would just get me out of the house for a change. So... How did you actually become an interpreter? Was there always a, a childhood dream or was it pure happenstance? And then how, how did that evolve? That's a long, bizarre story. Um, when I was about 14, um, I'd been learning French since the age of eight because my dad spoke fluent French. Um, I'd worked in the railway, spoke fluent French, loved it when, when they got tourists in the train station. Um, I wanted to be an interpreter from about 14 when I watched people doing it at uh, Christian youth conferences. I think, I was, I think I was about 15 where suddenly they said, you speak decent French. I was like, yeah, c'est pas mal. And from those four words, I got put on uh, in the city centre of Brighton in front of 200 young people and anyone who was passing by where this other teenager shared his life story in French, sentence by sentence. And so I did a sentence by sentence consecutive live in Brighton Town Centre, having never interpreted before. And from, the, from then I just caught the bug. Uh, unfortunately, a careers advisor at school gave me bad advice and I thought I couldn't actually become an interpreter until I was doing my year abroad in Dunkirk, where they speak the French equivalent of Glaswegian, um, and, and saw an advert for the Heriot Watt course and went, oh, I can do it with just two languages, right, I'm there. Um, went to the Heriot Watt course and, and really never looked back. The MSc made a huge, huge difference to me and I, I fell in love not just with the practice, but but with studying the practice. Um, all because of a guy called Ian Mason, who was a, an amazing professor, still going now, an absolutely fantastic professor who uh, started thinking, well, if translation or in, and interpreting is about language, what can our knowledge of language do to help translators and interpreters? And just completely swept away the field with his work. Um, and his passion and openness and honesty about how much we don't know just really caught me by surprise as well. And I got into studying interpreting too. And so you uh, you studied in Edinburgh then at Harriet Watts. Yeah, I studied at, at Harriet Watt, and my uh, my uh, English to French tutor is is actually still there. She's now one of the professors, so I must not have um, I must not have worried her too much. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know if you can say, but what was your favourite part about studying? Um, my favourite part about studying, I think, was probably. There are two. One is booth time. I loved being in the booth, especially when we got a really interesting talk to do. 
um, we, we have these things called mini conferences where from your second semester, they do mock conferences every single week and everyone on the course is expected to be there interpreting or speaking. And the mini conferences I just thought were fantastic. Um, but I also loved the fact that there weren't, there wasn't a huge amount of lectures. So I got to spend an awful lot of time in the library, just randomly reading things. And I think what makes a good interpreter is someone who can't get enough information about whatever. Um, I've met so many interpreters who could quite happily just sit and browse random Wikipedia articles for hours on end. Oh yeah. Just in case, uh, left-handed brown squirrels comes up in their next assignment. Yeah. You never know when you can use it. Exactly. Um, I, I, I used to love browsing random chemicals on Wikipedia until I realized that I was probably going to get on the NSA blacklist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Trying to build a bomb or anything. Yeah, well. Yeah, okay. Um, so during the course of your study, did you, did you spend some time abroad? Is that part of the, of the normal structure of the, of the training? Uh, it was part of my undergraduate degree, which was in English and French literature, which, to use a British phrase, was about as useful as a chocolate teapot. <laughs> But I did seven. I did seven months in in Dunkirk in the north of France. Okay, that was that. Yeah, yeah, that that was that, and that was great. I got um, while I was there because he'd seen me interpret all once before. They gave me another tryout, and then I did my first conference while I was there. They had a, a European youth conference in the church uh, that I was part of while I was there, and so I was interpreting for another kind of hundred odd people. Um, I think I did about three or four sessions because I did all of the French to English and someone else did all of the English to French mm. all in on stage consecutive without notes I'd never been trained before and my thing is if you if you can do that interpreting once you're either going to love it and never want to stop doing it or hate it and never want to yeah. do it again and I just fell into the first category it's like a make or break experience well exactly because you know mad things happen at youth conferences and you just have to learn how to think on your feet. I still have the recordings of it somewhere and I cringe oh, really do. badly at my performance. <laughs> yeah, yeah my, my first live interpreting performance at a conference I have on CD. Yeah. And, oh, I got, um, I mixed up because I was doing French to English and I he said quions and I thought he said croissants. Oh, right. So, yeah, little things like that just really, really bug me now and how close I was to the French word order bugs me as well. But, you know, you live and learn. Yeah, They can teach a lot at university, but I've noticed experience has taught me a lot more than you could possibly learn in the classroom. Oh, definitely, yes. Like how, when to go macro, when to kind of lengthen your lag and go, you know what, I'm not even going to attempt to get everything he's saying. I'm going to get the the main message that he's giving. And I'll be much better doing that than trying to get every single detail because everyone's going to fall asleep if they get the details. Exactly. It's much more useful for, for your client or for the listener. That's that's for sure. Yeah. Yep. So um, I believe you also did or do interpreter training. Do you still do, do that um, at Harriet Watts? No, I don't train at Harriet Watt, but what I'm beginning to do now and what I'm planning to do off the back of the book is to start do start doing kind of paid for interpreter training for those who are already in the profession. Um, in Warsaw this year, yeah, at the Translation and Localization Conference in Warsaw this year, I did um, a session on public speaking for interpreters. And an awful lot of it was getting people to tap their own experience that they've seen and heard in the booth and go, okay, if you know what works when you're in the booth, let's get you to do that same thing. And I said, one of the problems that I've noticed is that often we'll default to what we know doesn't work because that seems to be what we what we hear all day and mm -hmm. um, we, we might hear a great speaker maybe once or twice a year and don't realize that's where we should be heading not the average speaker that we're interpreting for every assignment that's definitely true yeah especially in the institutional context that i work in yes it's definitely true 
there's a reason why they call it an institution, maybe. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but I think that's the thing is that um, I started by kind of chatting to academics about it, but I realised that interpreters, one of the things that I'm talking about in the book is that the institutional market is where we're all trained to go to as interpreters, but no matter how much the European institutions hire interpreters, supply will always outstrip demand. So the vast majority of interpreters will have to find their clients elsewhere. And my argument is, well, let's find out how those clients tick. You know, we already know largely what the institutions want. Let's find out how the non-institutional clients tick. And it just so happens that many of them seem to want to meet you face-to-face, seem to want you to be able to present your business in 20 seconds, Mm -hmm. um, or might want you to do a presentation to the boss. So you have to be able to carry yourself with the same assurance and the same confidence as you would in the booth, even when you're being a business person. Um, and my experience certainly is that most interpreters are much less confident carrying themselves as a business person than they are as an interpreter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, thankfully, we have a few uh, colleagues who, who deal with that, like Marta, for example, who does a lot of uh, business-focused training. So I, I think that's that's good, but certainly a potential that, that can be developed. Yeah. Yep. So how did you make the transition then from maybe not being a student, but then a graduate uh, and a budding interpreter to the PhD and to research? Um, funnily enough, as I was walking through um, a set of double doors in our department, I suddenly had this thing, um, and as a Christian, I really felt it was a God thing saying, I need to stay and do a PhD, and I ignored it at that point because, you know, the standard thing is finish your degree, get a job. Um, and yeah. it was after about two, three years when I'd struggled with translator's loneliness. Um, wondering what was going on, I realised that I was defaulting to, I know some people who default to when they have a quiet day, do some marketing. Uh, When I had a quiet day, I was reading interpreting research, which wasn't helping my business development at all. But I I realized that I was actually far happier doing that than I was bidding for pros jobs. I would find out later that there are far better ways to market your services. Um, But I suddenly realized that actually I was more passionate about improving my practice by research than I was in, you know, going out to business networking and trying to explain to people that, no, I was not an interpreter. I was not any form of potato. Um, A simultaneous translator. Oh, yeah, yeah. please don't. I, I just ask people how fast they actually think I can I can type. <laughs> um, and so, and then what happened was I started the PhD wanting to look at the difference between on-stage consecutive and simultaneous. And I realized about six months in that wasn't going to work. And what was really interesting to me was what the clients actually want. Mm. Um, and so I ended up, um, I, I, I concentrated on church interpreting since basically that's where I started. Um, and I found so many commonalities between church interpreting and institutional interpreting and public service interpreting. It's totally crazy how many common things there are. Um, and I just asked the question, you know, what do the stakeholders of church interpreting actually want from interpreters? And it turned out the answers surprised me in more ways than one. Um, and one of the answers uh, became the, the seed of the book, which I'm now finishing off for Routledge, uh, with the idea that we tend to measure, we tend to look for clients who need us. But, you know, if I need to change a light bulb in my house, I'm not going to go and pay £100 for a light bulb because I just want light. That's all I want. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, if I'm buying a computer, uh, it's not just a need, it's something I want because I obviously want the computer to do a certain thing and I can see how it's going to add value to my business. So I'll pay far more and be more interested in going up market in a computer than I would in a light bulb. Um, and it just so happened that traditionally we've been selling interpreting like light bulbs. You know, everyone must have an interpreter if you have a foreign language. 
And so, of course, people are going to pay as little as, as they can. Hmm. We're selling it on the basis of need, not want. The, the book then takes you through the journey of what does it mean to get people to want interpreting and how do we get to that stage? Yeah, I'm thinking of this one article you published in the uh, VKD Korea, which is the uh, internal publication of the, the German Association of Conference Interpreters, which was precisely about that, about uh, church interpreting. Uh, can you maybe tell us a bit more? Do you do, you do that on a regular basis? or you... I used to do it more than I do now. Um, it's a strange thing that most of my career I've been in churches that don't need it, and I've ended up doing it for special events and conferences. Um, end of last year, I was doing it for a French guest speaker, and it, it sounded like it was going to be a large event and then it became a small one so it really tested my ability to adapt my prep um but i my first experience with interpreting was church interpreting and for about two three years i was getting a lot of booth time just you know my my local church had an influx of um francophone africans come to the church from various countries and suddenly i'm having to work out you know under what circumstances can shushotage work uh, under what circumstances do you need to be on stage consec? Uh, under what circumstances do we need to find another solution? And I think church interpreting makes you pose the hard questions about interpreting, especially things like where an established church just suddenly gets interpreting. You go, right, how do we fit this into what the organisation's already doing? As opposed to the, there's a church that I know in Germany, in Bonn, where interpreting has been part of their DNA almost since the beginning, to the point where line one of their constitution is, in German, we are an international church, and so we have interpreting. Line one of the constitution. Um, and that completely changes how they view interpreting, completely changes how they look after their interpreters, completely changes what they expect of their interpreters. And so when I went to do research there, I felt that I was learning from them as much as they were learning from me. And and what did it look like? Did you did you interpret the whole service? Um, mostly, this, this is where it gets a bit funny, because... My experience was an awful lot of conferences, and so you would just interpret the sermon. Okay. Um, and often the offering time as well, because the, the church group that I was in for a while would make a big deal out of the offering. And what you, you would end up doing is you would end up jumping about like a maddie to praise and worship, because it was a, a charismatic church, which tend to be quite loud. Um, and then you'd be straight into the booth. And so you would have to get used to shifting roles very, very quickly. That's what I found so interesting about the article, because I think the way you put it is that interpreters are part of the show. Or I think that's that's the way they put it, even. Yeah. Um, because you're not just there as a neutral medium, and you know, language A comes in at one side, and on the other side, language B comes out. It's 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 much more. Yeah. And did did you find that you could use that uh, for other assignments as well, or was that very very particular to church interpreting? Well, I'm beginning to appreciate more of that. That interpreters are part of the show. Actually, comes from an Italian study into sports interpreting, where professional interpreters were being sacked because they were interpreting neutrally and weren't it wasn't working so they used presenters instead and so i just borrowed that phrase because i thought it's such a nice phrase it is um and it shows i mean it seems to apply in sports interpreting it seems to apply in media interpreting certainly in church interpreting it does and there are some assignments where you need to be aware of that so there's a story in the book where i was interpreting for a manufacturer of construction equipment they, they basically made large trucks of various kinds mm -hmm. um and we had been briefed that it was just them speaking to their own organization and it turned out actually no it's not it's their own organization and the press relations job mm -hmm. and so by the time we sat in the booths uh, there were a team of about eight of us in the end four booths in the end and we suddenly realized we have to get this right um and so certainly i know the, the french booth my, my colleague laura and i who are trained with as well we switched into okay this is press relations we are going to be marketing people 
Yeah. And so, you know, when the sales guy stands up, we become salespeople. They don't want us to do neutral, you know, just chill out and get the content across. They want us to find a way of bringing across their enthusiasm in a way that's relevant for the audience. Um, and that, you know, you could argue that you're still neutral, but at the end of the day, you're taking responsibility for the success of what happens. And it's a, it's a different mindset in a way, I think. Yeah, it, I mean, I, I looked up a, about a year afterwards, I looked up and realized that they got a really good write-up in the French press, and I thought, yeah, that's because we cared. Excellent. Um, and I feel like where we need to be going with interpreting, arguably even in the institutions, um, in fact, more than Beaton's find out that the institutional interpreters do it without realizing, is that we need to care about the outcome of the event that we're at. Uh, we need to make it a personal thing. You know, it's not, if it's just a job, then we won't do the same kind of work as if we think, hold on, we're responsible, at least partially responsible for this working. And that applies in all forms of interpreting, whether you're doing court interpreting, medical, conference, wherever, the interpreter has should have a stake in the success of the event. That, that is definitely true. And, and I, especially in my context here as well, in, in the in the institutions, and I, and I think you referred to it at some point to, to high stakes, low stakes, but even if it's low stakes or a perceived uh, low stakes um, event, I think just caring about what, what they talk about a bit more makes it more interesting for you and more engaging. And it's uh, because sometimes, I mean, let's face it, some meetings can be quite boring. But if you if you saw if you sort of try to be more involved and try to be interested in it and try to care about it more, I think that makes the, the work much more rewarding and it definitely makes our results much better in the end. Uh, yeah, I think one of the things I'm noticing is the difference between high value and low value. And I mean, I've been warned by my supervisor not to give too much away because we've got a paper coming out. We've got a paper that we're working at, working on. But high value interpreting is where the clients realise that basically, um, not without you, the event couldn't have been as much as, of a success as it was. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, I think we were joking earlier about you know the traditional thing we tell interpreters: make it uh, be so good that it's as if you weren't even there. Well, the problem with that is that people are going to stop paying you eventually. <laughs> the logical conclusion is use, uh, use machine interpreting. Um, when people realize that not only are you there, not only did they understand, but something happened, then I think that that, that makes a difference. And this is where, it's what I'm talking about in the book, it's what I'm now talking about in research, is wherever I go, I'm now talking about it. And it's because the more I read research and the more I even try some of this in my own practice, the more I realize this works. Um, there's another story in the book. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a, an events industry kind of show thing. So you had all these events industry guys and hotels trying to sell you rooms and convention centers and stuff. And I was talking to this guy who was into, uh, he organizes sports events. And talking to him, he I realized that what he had been getting was his uncle or his cousin or whoever he could find to interpret and just, you know, give me the language. What he actually wanted and needed was someone who cared enough to go, all right, I see where your event's trying to go. Let me help you make it work. Yeah. And as soon as I said, yeah, that's the kind of interpreting I do, his eyes lit up and he went, give me your email address. And I thought, well, you know, if it's that easy to just say to the client, see the thing that you're actually wanting, that's what we can give you. <laughs> and that's what we like to give you. Um, but the problem is, is to do that, we have to deal with about 50 years worth of tradition because of where professional interpreting as we know it started um, and it's not quite Oedipal, we're not trying to kill off the founders of interpreting, we're just having to realise that we're not in the 1950s anymore and so the ethics laid down by Seleskovich and that in the 60s and 70s are, 
are, are wonderful and great for their time, and the IE 1950s ethics were fantastic for their time, but were now in the 2010s. Um, the game has changed. Fundamentally, the game has changed. It's not that we need to abandon everything we had before, but we need to rethink what, what are the terms for today? What are the, the um, rules of engagement for interpreting today? Um, translation has done it superbly, I think, in the past 10, 15 years. Um, they, they've really turned around and said, okay, we are a service industry, let's deliver a service. I just wish interpreting would suddenly realise, we're a service industry, let's deliver a service. We're a bit slower. And I've, I've no one has quite convinced me why we're that much slower. Because translation had to get over the same ethical issues as we did. That, that is a, a very good question. Yeah, because we all realise that, I think, that, that interpreters seem to be a bit slower when it comes to adapting you know te technology which is my particular focus but th that's an excellent question why that is but i from the top of my head i cannot think of anything that would would be a a convincing reason for that slowliness i mean the the only one that i i may have found is there's this mythos around institutional interpreting which you'll probably be be well aware of is that if we're trained to fit the eu mold we have to be told what those standards are and for a while we were convinced and even researchers were convinced that the eu standard was this perfect neutrality perfect terminological accuracy um invisible interpreter thing and then morven beaton did a, her phd on interpreting of the eu and i don't know which interpreter she did she probably doesn't know because it's all anonymized anyway and find out that perhaps without recognizing it eu interpreters systematically downplay any ideologies contrary to the the eu ideology mm -hmm. so they're already taking a position yeah and so when there's a realization that hold on they're taking a position anyway suddenly i think if we can have this ideological shift that we're always taking a position even if we don't realize it um i've got a blog post coming out on the 12th where i've said you know if we say we're not taking a position we're defaulting to the position of the most powerful client yeah it's true and so if we can actually get that into our heads that as soon as we have this default position of we're not taking a position, we're actively hurting the weaker client. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that in the institutional context, it probably doesn't, you've probably not got the same dynamics, but certainly if you're working in public service or court interpreting, that has to matter to you that that's what you're actually doing. Um, yes. And I think in in professional conference interpreting, certainly where I see the industry going, if we play this invisible interpreter card for too much longer we will be replaced and it will be our own fault and nobody will notice no no one no, no one will notice and you know we've had this argument about remote um remote interpreting and the the research on remote interpreting is it does seem to cause more stress whether it causes long-term issues no one knows yet whether it causes accuracy issues no one's no one's clear mm. um but if we want to argue that we have to be in the room we have to have a convincing argument for that and saying it will raise my blood pressure is not going to convince any client yes yeah our clients do not care about our long-term health they probably shouldn't <laughs> <laughs> because you know they're not paying for our doctor's bills well not directly at least yeah yeah not directly they're coming and they're paying us to come and do a job exactly and and so if we can if we can say to them look if we're there we'll have the same access to what's going on as you will and we will be able to have the same commitment to the event as you will and make it better then they'll pay the extra however many thousand pounds to put boots in if we say oh if we're there it'll raise my blood pressure they'll go oh well see you at home <laughs> you know it's simple as that <laughs> yeah the book you're 
you're not writing, you, you've finished writing it by now, I think, but uh, was it a natural development building on the foundation of your PhD? Why did that come about? It was a natural development of um, reading a lot of research. And what happened was I've been a columnist for the ITI Bulletin, which is kind of an industry publication in the UK. ITI is the biggest um, specialist translation interpreting uh, association in, in the UK. Mm-hmm. The, the the then editor gave me a column which I've been writing for three years looking at research into practice. How do you turn what researchers are doing into something that will improve your practice in some way, whether it's get you more money, get you more efficient or whatever. So I'd started writing that. Mm-hmm. Got a column in the, the Falcade Courier about a, uh, a year ago, I think. Yeah. And suddenly I realised that most of what I was writing was about the same subject. <laughs> was I was really coming at this adding value thing from a million different angles. And I thought, well, hold on. I kind of chatted with my wife and um, male interpreters will tell you that wives are fountains of wisdom. And and I said, you know, I've been writing about this stuff all the time. I said, maybe I should write a book, but I don't know if anyone will buy it. And she just looked at me and said, write the book, please. <laughs> In fact, I think her words were something like, why haven't you already started writing? Yeah. Uh, which is incredibly wife to say. And I just sat down and wrote and about three or four chart. There are three or four chapters there that I could write almost without looking at the keyboard, that the stuff was just there. Yeah. Um, a couple of the chapters, like there's a chapter on interpreter health, which, as I joke, you know, I went to a physio because I had bad knees and he just fixed his glare at me and said, um, your problem is your job, Mr. Downey. Yeah. Um, you know, he asked me if I did exercise. I said, well, every so often I'll run to the shared printer at uni. Does that count? <laughs> and apparently that doesn't count as exercise. Um and so the, the health chapter, I had to sit down and get the get help from uh, Camille Kellogg, who I interview, who's an expert on interpreter nutrition, um, read the studies and go, okay, what does it take to be a healthy interpreter? It turns out it takes time and commitment and effort, but oh well. Too bad. <laughs> yeah. It means that we actually have to exercise, which is a bit strange for interpreters to think about. Um, and some of the other chapters took more effort, but it was worth it in the end to come away with um, the final draft is going to the publishers next week to come out with something that I'm confident is not going to go out of date as soon as it comes out in print. Right. Um, and my aim was to write something that people could instantly use. So the chapters are, no chapter is longer in total than about 5,000 words. Okay. So the idea was you can read a chapter on the way to an assignment uh-huh. and every chapter ends with questions to ask, which is where I get people to test their assumptions and to ask, okay, not just how am I practicing interpreting, but why am I practicing it that way? Um, and are there areas which I can become self-aware enough to go, that has to change? Um, and then there's a, a putting it into practice, and that's in two sections. One is just personally. So you might get things like personal things that I can give people on improving their marketing, or um, there's one or two very quick tips that I found on improving your health, mm. such as sw- switching your breakfast. Um, and then there's kind of mostly the the things to do on yourself are relatively short term Um, and then there's things to do in a group which tend to be longer term which is where I realised that we're not going to change interpreting on our own we need the European Commission and uh, European Institution interpreters to work with the sign language interpreters to work with the the court interpreters to sit there and go okay we each have our strengths and weaknesses you know it's easier for the European Institution interpreters to get access to the people who have the power Mm. it's far more difficult for sign language interpreters to do that so there there should be a way of 
us using the different skills that different kind of interpreters build and saying, okay, let's work together to improve the value that we add to our profession because we all benefit as the status of the profession grows. Um, there's a quip in there that, you know, if you're a staffer at the moment, you might feel like you're on the top of the pile and you're fairly secure. Mm. But the growth of the right wing in Europe suggests that it would only take one word from a certain kind of politician to, you know, ask the EU why it's wasting money on interpreting and suddenly the House of Cards begin to, begins to tumble. And so no one is, absolutely no one is secure at the moment. Uh, and so if we can get that in our heads that no one is secure, I think we can start working from a better a better foundation and people can start going, okay, what benefits do I have? You know, some interpreters are amazing at lobbying. Other interpreters can get straight to the European Commission and get listened to. Well, okay, can we combine those strengths? Um, let, let's work together. And I mean, I, I still find it odd that we have an International Translators Day on St. Jerome's birthday, St. Jerome's feast day, but no one's ever thought of an International Interpreters Day. Really simple things like that would help us add value to our profession really, really easily and would solve the upcoming crisis. I mean, the European institutions have been warning about a crisis coming with native English speakers. Well, you change that together. You, you fix that together. You don't fix that by railing at governments. You fix that by saying, okay, schools, how can we help? That's what you do. I have to do as a profession as a whole, yeah. That's, yeah. And as an individual as well, I mean, I, I would love to get back into my old high school and say, guess what? People from the west of Scotland can be successful. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if you compare writing the PhD and writing writing the book, I mean, definitely it must have been different. But was it maybe liberating to write the book because you had fewer constraints maybe? Or how, how would you describe the difference between writing a, a rather strict research project and a PhD and then and the book, which seems to be, I don't know how to put it, but I'm, how would you describe the difference? The, the, the book certainly has more jokes in it and <laughs> is good. more of my conversational style. Yes. The book has more jokes in it because I interview Ma uh, Matthew Perret. Oh, okay. Well then. <laughs> who is just, the man is a genius. He is. Um, but with, with the PhD, I mean, at the moment, let's say I'm having a discussion with my supervisors over one sentence in my PhD, um, and that level of discussion is good because, you know, it's going to be uh, my external examiner is a man called Franz Pohacker, yeah, who most interpreters know, yes. and he has a reputation, so you don't want to mess up. Absolutely. And so that is strict, but the rigor from that I could use in the book because then I could go, okay, um, even my supervisor says that I have this nasty habit of questioning assumptions. <laughs> um, and so with the book, the first thing, the first chapter I wrote was on ripping up neutrality and, and adding value. Um, and that came from the, the rigor of the, the PhD going, okay, I'm not going to say something that I don't have the evidence to say. Yes. Um, if the evidence isn't there, it doesn't go in the book. And so literally while there may, there may be one paper, two papers quoted per chapter, I can guarantee you that behind that behind most of those chapters are at least five or six, or in the case of the first chapter, about 30 different studies. Mm. Um, and so I'm not sure that there may be a further reading se section for each chapter where I just say, look, go look at it yourself and, and find the evidence your way. And that's that kind of rigor and that kind of tenacity to not give up when you hit a snag. I mean, there, there was a quite a late issue with the book which delayed it. You know, the tenacity of doing a PhD and going, this is going to be finished... <laughs> meant that you have to find a solution. I I almost wish that every interpreter would do a PhD just because, for two reasons. One, because it gives you the time and space to think about your own practice yes. and reflect a lot more on what is true and what isn't true. And the second thing is because we wouldn't 
fall the rigor from that i think changes your research for a job into another gear um, and changes the way you approach your work into another gear because you suddenly realize that you have to throw every, everything in the air and see how it lands um, you, you can't just go oh, i've done this job before i'll just do it the same way as last time you say okay what did i learn from last time what did and didn't work from last time what might the client want this time that's new um and doing a phd gives you that mental toughness to be able to look at your own work and go you know what that's garbage but i can do better questioning assumptions or perceived wisdom well there's a line in the book where i say that there's something about a master's degree that makes it difficult for you to look for help doing a phd means that you're entirely looking for help throughout the three or four years um no phd i mean you're right that it's all your own work which it is but on the other hand, you have supervisors who are helping you. You have other researchers who are helping you. Um, and suddenly w- when you're in that thing of, I couldn't have done this without help as an interpreter now, I'm like, well, you know what? I, I desperately need to look for a mentor. Uh, I desperately need to find a way of improving my French public speaking skills. You know, there are things in my professional interpreting, which I now know, you know what? I'm going to be humble enough to ask for help yeah. um, and find the people who can give it to me. And that's why, you know, Routledge suggested that entitled the book, The Successful Interpreter. And I'm like, please don't title it that because I'm not successful yet. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'll be successful when I reach the level of the people I'm trying to reach. Yeah. Um, and But doing the PhD has made, made me realize, you know what? It's okay to say, guys, I'm not coping. Can someone help me? Or this area isn't working. Can I get help? Um, I don't know if they encourage that in the European institutions, but certainly as freelancers, it can be incredibly difficult to put your heart on your sleeve and just say, you know what, this isn't working. Someone help me fix it. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely still a, a touchy subject, but it seems to be changing as a new, I don't know, not a new generation, but it, it, as new blood simply mm-hmm. uh, moves in and, and changes things around. Yeah, because I've always been very much about you know being being open and transparent and um also you know discussing your own performance your own mm. flaws but it, it's not really it doesn't really run in our veins as interpreters i think unfortunately i i think it's a shame well, we're losing out on something this is the thing there's a, a group on facebook called community of practice which was started after a webinar series that i ran through a company called ecpd mm-hmm. and the lady who runs epc ecpd just created this facebook group called community of practice it's fairly quiet but the aim of that is that people can just pose a thing and say you know i've shared a bit about the book but one of the questions that i said was you know what one thing would you change about your interpreter university training Mm. and it's amazing what you get and then a question that i'm probably going to pose this week is if you could change one thing about your practice now what would you change and the follow-on question from that is okay how are you going to change it and to get used to the fact that um elizabeth tesselius who i interview um in chapter three of the book Mm. as an expert on interpreter development found out in her phd that she looked at some staff interpreters with the European institutions who, after 20 years of experience, were interpreting worse than they did when they were at university. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, and so... It's sad, but true. Yeah. Her, her question was, well, why? Because that shouldn't be happening. And it turns out that most other fields where they have recognised experts, from doctors to sports people, they become that by what's called deliberate practice, which is practice with a coach yes. or with a mentor. Not 10,000 hours just practicing. It's with practice that isn't your daily work, with a coach or a mentor who specifically designs things for you to work on. Mm. So, you know, I know I need to work on my French public speaking skills. I should be getting, you know, I have an English public speaking coach. I should be getting a French one now saying, 
you know, drilling me on introductions and conclusions and on uh, how French people think, that's where I, sh- I need to be going. Yeah. Um, maybe other interpreters, you know, all oh, your decalage management's a bit weird. Okay, do some practice stuff, find another interpreter, get them to drill you on it and give you specific exercises so that you can adapt your decalage to what you're doing. Or maybe your terminology research sucks. Well, get someone to give you exercises on that. Mm. It's it's actually a strength to find a better interpreter and say, you know, I, I'm going to find a, a better interpreter about business skills and say, okay, teach me how to get clients. And I tell you what, when I get clients, I'll hire you as well. You know, quid pro quo. Yeah. Literally, it's giving them quid back. But um, but that's, I think that's absolutely where we need to be going is let's get mentoring into interpreting, let's get coaching into interpreting, and let's get to the point where the next time someone does a study and compares us after 20 years of experience, they go, you know what? They are the interpreter version of Mozart and Picasso, and when you're still at school, you're the equivalent of someone playing recorder at primary school. Yeah. You know, that we should be seeing that level of difference. But at the moment, we're not... And that's a serious, serious issue in our practice. Yeah, and I mean, you could you could keep it fairly simple just by recording yourself from time to time and just listening to that because um, we often don't realize that we have a certain tick or that we that we do something and uh, in the booth while interpreting and just recording yourself and listening to that can be a, a humbling experience from time to time as well. I've done it myself, so yeah. Uh, but but of course, getting a mentor would would be even better. I, I've had to stop myself in French with especially French speakers who repeat themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, the phrase "comme j'ai déjà dit." Yeah, I say that so many, and I've had to be aware of. Let's stop saying that yeah. because not every speaker is repeat. And, you know, it's it's a standard filler. And I've realized actually, okay, let's make sure my fillers are varied and I'm not just saying comme j'ai déjà dit every single time yeah. because that would get boring. <laughs> um, and, and things like, you know, if you're interpreting from French, you need to practice get, making sure that you catch negations because oh, they yeah. will catch you out. No plus and plus. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's going to happen to you at some point. <laughs> <laughs> play as much French as you possibly can so that you never trip and you know, I mean I've heard I've been in the booth with experienced interpreters who've tripped over negations it's like we all do it <laughs> let's just drill it so that we don't do it anymore you know it's it's really basic stuff yeah well, but at least maybe we do we're... it less often I mean nobody's perfect <laughs> after all or, or, or we just do it and recover quickly. I tell people that you can tell an experienced professional where it's not they make less mistakes, it's just they recover from them better. Yeah, exactly. I remember I was doing some teaching for some church interpreters in Germany and the light bulbs just went on and I said to them, you know, you should be self-monitoring. And they went... <laughs> and I was teaching them, you know, the, the effort models, which is Daniel Gilles, yeah. fairly basic interpreting practice. And because they'd never had training... The idea that they could control their attention just blew their minds. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, well, hold on a minute. We take that as basics, but how many of us are actually practicing what we would say? Oh, oh come on, that's you know, that's first semester training. Well, okay, are we practicing it? Yeah, that's true. I like to ask difficult questions because I've found that I that I, I've had so many coaches and mentors and people helping me and the sad thing is until someone asks you an uncomfortable question, you're probably not growing. It's when someone asks you, okay, but why are you doing that? Or do you think that's the best course of action? Or what's the, what's the outcome of that? Um, I've not got it in the book, but I think, I've, I think I'm going to blog soon about, you know, if it's not working, that means you have to fix it. Yeah. You know, if interpreters being underpaid, it means we need to change something. Of course. Um, but it's not something that we, we don't like to confront the fact that some things aren't working. 
well, let's confront that, let's change them, and let's move on. Um, maybe a last question in this in this context. Um, I don't know if you discussed it in the book, but what is your take on the role of professional associations in all this, such as the ITI or AIC or others? I mean, just improving the improving, you know, the uh, things just in general. I have an entire chapter on that, funnily enough, um, and I interviewed. I chose to interview the chair of ITI, Ewan Davis, mm -hmm. for the Davies. Sorry. For the sole reason that ITI is unique, that it brings together freelancers, few staffers, and agent, uh, agencies. Now, I know people criticise professional associations for that, but for me, the role of a strong professional association is to speak for the profession as a whole. And that, to me, includes the interests of those who are employing us, because they're people too. Yeah. And when we speak for an entire industry, we have a louder voice than we do when we just say, OK, uh, we're going to be a glorified union and defend our, our plot. Um, for me, professional associations need to do um, two main things. One, they need to be a community of practice. So encouraging people to hold the values of the profession, encouraging people to practice, encouraging people to develop and rewarding that by some kind of status increase. Um, and the other thing that they need to do is they need to be a voice of the industry as a whole. Um, there's something, it's wonderful to have conference interpreting associations, it's wonderful to have public service interpreting associations, that's great. But I think the stronger professional associations are going to be the ones that can stand up to government or to the commission or to anyone else and say, okay, here is what is happening in the, transla in the translation interp and interpreting industry or even just the interpreting industry as a whole. Mm. Here are the industry trends, here are where, you know, it's in the interest of our clients to have strong, qualified uh, fully developed interpreters um, and the clients who are hiring cheap ones they get found out soon enough I mean the good clients if we can speak if the, if the professional associations can speak for the good clients and the excellent interpreters mm -hmm. then actually they'll be saying the same things anyway all the really good clients are saying an awful lot of the things that we should be saying you know where's the development going where's the value going um, how do we find there's a desperate need in interpreting for a reliable way to find a good interpreter, yeah. whatever the language pair. Um, we we need far better signs of not just, you know, did they pass an exam three years ago, but how good are they today? Yeah, exactly. Uh, we need some sort of dynamic way of telling people, you know, okay, Joe Smith qualified five years ago, but you know what? He's gone off the rails. <laughs> but, you know, um, Peter Hughes only qualified a year ago, but I tell you what, he's he's amazing. He's He's on the ball. Yeah. That kind of signalling is what clients need to have, and there is no method of doing that at the moment. You know, you could say they're IEEC or they're ITI registered, but yeah, okay, they got in 10 years ago. What does that tell you about today? It doesn't necessarily mean all that much, especially to outsiders or to clients. It's true. Yeah. And so I think the professional associations can create those signalling mechanisms and can push the values of the industry and saying, this is what it means to be a professional. And I've got an entire page on what it means to be a professional interpreter. I saw that. I saw that. Yeah, yeah. Good stuff. Um, and, and that's that's where I think if, if they can speak out for their profession and relate to outsiders, and if they can create a community of practice and keep building them, I think professional associations will will keep on going for a long, long time. If they start defending their own territory, if they start just saying we're basically unions, they're going to have a problem because the vast majority of interpreters are business people, not staff. And the dynamic between a business person and their client is not the same as between a member of staff and their boss. Yeah, definitely true. 
All right. Um, Jonathan, do you know already when the book will be out in stores? Not yet. I should get it. I'm going to ask for an estimate next week, but it's going to be in the first half of next year, I would imagine, in the spring. Excellent. I think we all have something to look forward then. Yep, I'm hoping to, to launch it live at, at, at an upcoming conference, but I'll get more details out on that as soon as I can. Excellent. Um, meanwhile, you can make sure to follow Jonathan on uh, Twitter. And LinkedIn. <laughs> and probably on other platforms as well. Or you can probably see him at uh, the occasional conference here and there. Uh, anything you've uh, planned for the rest of this year? Well, in September, I'm doing a seminar on interpreting for Bible translators. There's a... a big long story behind that because um, more and more cultures don't have well more and more cultures are needing things in their language but don't have a written language so what are you going to do you're going to have interpreters um, and to work effectively with interpreters and work out how to train them when you don't have a nice Bosch or Braille booths you know how do you train them when there's no equipment uh, well you need to think about that yeah then thank you very much Jonathan for having taken the time okay this was a very interesting conversation uh, I'm sure the listeners will agree I hope so <laughs> that's the end of this episode We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.